0: I invite you to join me in the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we come back to our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful gospel. The title of the message today is Jesus in Rome. I want to remind you of the chronology of events in these last couple of chapters. Remember that Jesus had come to Jerusalem. He entered the city on the fold of a donkey, and throughout the week leading up to his crucifixion, every day he would go to the temple and teach. There he was challenged by the Pharisees and those that they sent to question Jesus to try to trip him up catch him on the horns of a dilemma. He, of course, uh, knew what was going on. Um, The climax of the week, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, was the taking of the Passover meal, which Jesus took with his inner circle in a borrowed upper room. And that was um, the occasion that Judas, the traitor, used to, to leave that event and go and receive those 30 pieces of silver. Uh, knowing that Jesus would retire for the evening to the Mount of Olives, to the garden of Gethsemane, which was his custom. And there he led a mob of perhaps a thousand men with torches and clubs. Jesus uh, was praying, his disciples were sleeping, Um, but Jesus came out and met Judas and he gave him that traitorous kiss. And from there, Jesus was arrested and taken to Annas, the high priest house. From Annas' house, his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And from Caiaphas, as the sun was coming up, to the Sanhedrin which met in a room adjacent to the temple. These were the men who were supposed to be meeting out justice and they had conspired to do injustice, to take the life of the only truly innocent person that ever lived. And so the Sanhedrin quickly finds Jesus guilty. And now knowing that they don't have the power to put him to death legally, they proceed together over to the residence called the Praetorium of the Roman governor, a man by the name of Pilate. And that leads us to our text today, Luke chapter 23, verse one. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the King. So Pilate asked him saying, are you the King of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. And then Pilate said to the chief priests of the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now we know that even though the Sanhedrin didn't have the power of capital punishment, sometimes they practiced it. Um, Sometimes the Roman government turned the other way. They were unlikely to do that on this occasion because it was festival time. Uh, Jerusalem was teeming with visitors from all over the world and extra soldiers had been brought in. In fact, Pilate himself didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in another city. But he always came to Jerusalem during times of festivals because he knew there was a heightened possibility of insurrection. And so early that morning, John tells us in his gospel very early, all of these men, there would be 70 plus the high priest, proceed with Jesus down the street and uh, where they probably had to awaken Pilate from his bed. And so he comes out and uh, they would not enter his door because by doing so, they would have uh, become ceremonially unclean and unable to take over the Passover themselves. And so you see the hypocrisy is, is throughout. Now, the first thing we see here is a group of perjured prosecutors. Now, up until this time, they were an appellate court. Uh, they were the equivalent of the Supreme Court and, and, and they heard Jesus' case and they found him guilty of, of blasphemy. But now, because they want a stricter sentence than they were allowed to give, they become prosecuting attorneys. They're going to bring charges against Jesus and they're going to demand that Pilate carry out sentence. Well the relationship between the Jewish people in general and the Roman government was always filled with tension for a number of reasons. One is that the Romans were always going to be viewed as invaders and outsiders. Israel was the promised land given to them by the Lord Here, these pagans had come from Italy and defiled it. Um, And they worshiped, of course, many gods, pagan gods. And this was in violation of the first two commandments in the Jewish law, Um, but probably what irked the most is they were forced, the Jews were, to pay exorbitant taxes. Rome was a beast that had to constantly be fed to keep up with the demands of Rome. That's why they had to constantly be conquering new territory. They needed the raw materials. They need the tax revenues to keep flowing back to Rome. You've heard the statement that all roads lead to Rome and they do, but the reason is they wanted that tax revenue to keep on flowing. The the very presence of the Romans, I think, was a constant reminder of Israel's own unfaithfulness. Yes, they had been led into the promised land, but God warned them before they went in that if you're faithful, you'll prosper, but if you're unfaithful, you'll lose that prosperity. In fact, you'll be subject to pagan um, forces. And that of course is what happened time and time again. And and every time they saw a Roman soldier in his armor, I think it reminded them of their own infidelity. But there were some advantages to being under Roman rule. Uh, One was law and order. Those Roman soldiers that were garrisoned in Jerusalem were really um, military police. And so they kept down violence. They kept down crime, at least in the city. And wherever the Romans went, they brought improved infrastructure. They built roads and bridges and aqueducts. And so there was an improvement in some respects in the way of life for most people they conquered. And they gave a limited degree of religious freedom. Religious freedom is something we talk about a lot in our country. We Baptists are always proponents of religious freedom. But their motivation may be a little different than you might think. They were not um, bleeding hearts. Uh, they were not progressive. They they did it out of their own self-interest. And you remember that uh, they often put to, get, uh, put to death their enemies, often publicly. They would line the streets with crosses and put to death any who caused problem as as a reminder that Rome is in control here. And anyone who even have a thought of insurrection needs to put that thought to rest. But they did give the people a limited amount of freedom, but they had a very structured and sophisticated legal system and appeals process. You might recall from the book of Acts that the apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he had the right and privilege to appeal his case all the way up to the emperor himself. Speaking of the emperor, it was Emperor Tiberius who had appointed Pilate to this role of governor, he divided the empire into districts. And the empire by this time was vast, covering tens of thousands of square miles. Each district or, or, or area had a governor called a prefect who had an army under his control. And often local officials retained their titles, even sometimes royal titles, but it was clear that they were only puppet governors under the authority of Rome. Pontius Pilate represented the Roman Empire there in Jerusalem. Now, because the Romans were the puppet masters, they could replace the people under them on a whim, and they often did. And they even controlled the religious system. We've talked about Annas, the high priest, who had sort of a dynasty. He served as high priest, four of his sons, and then finally, Caiaphas, his son-in-law was serving during the time of Christ, but he only did that at the allowance of Pilate. And so it's likely that Pilate and Annas knew each other very well. They probably might've even been in business together because, um, it was not unlike Roman governors to be corrupt and to take bribes. But the thing that Rome feared the most from its outlying districts was rebellion. Now, why is that for the reason I mentioned earlier? Rebellion, warfare, rioting disrupted the flow of raw materials and tax revenue to Rome. This is why they continued to expand and expand and expand. As long as the tax revenue was coming in, as long as the raw materials were making it to Rome, they left the people alone. And an example of that is this Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin functioned uh, adjudicating cultural and religious problems that arose there in Jerusalem and indeed all of Judea. Uh, and, And Pilate likely would have viewed Jesus' case as one of those, a cultural case. He didn't have any reason to hear Jesus' case, but he was probably a little bit confused about why they were so enamored with this man who looked so harmless. Remember these men, this Sanhedrin, were 70 of what the community believed to be the most pious and the wisest men in the nation. And yet these 70 men are about to perjure themselves before the governor representing the most powerful empire in the world. And so as the prosecuting attorneys, they know that they have to read of an indictment. Luke says here, they brought him to Pilate and made charges against him. And I think they probably understood that the charges they were about to make were exceedingly flimsy. They were weak. And so what do they do? They do what children do when they want their way, but they know their reasons are flimsy. They began to add to them. They begin to fudge just a little bit. So, So look at what they do. Verse two, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the King. And so there's three separate charges they bring against Jesus. Number one, they say he's misleading the nation. I take that to mean the Jewish nation. That is, he's causing problems for us. This is probably the flimsiest of the three charges. It's incredibly vague and would never be admitted in any true court of law. This is all a matter of opinion. What they're basically saying is we don't like Jesus, put him to death. Well, not even Pilate would go for that. And so they had a second charge. They said he's forbidding the people to pay taxes to Caesar. Now this is the charge that would have gotten Pilate's attention. Remember his job is to keep the tax revenue rolling back to Rome. This of course is where they perjured themselves. This is a lie. In fact, earlier that week, someone had asked Jesus, is it right to pay the tax to Caesar? Jesus asked for a coin he held up the coin. He said, whose inscription and whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And what did Jesus say? Therefore, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God, the things that are God. Jesus never endorsed not paying your taxes. In fact, we know Jesus paid his own taxes. There's an episode mentioned in the gospels where uh, he and Peter owed taxes and uh, Peter didn't want to pay. And Jesus told him to go fishing and he took up a fish and inside the fish's mouth was a coin enough to pay Jesus taxes and Peter. So this is a lie. Jesus never told anyone not to pay their taxes, plain and simple. And then there's one more charge they tack on, and this is the one that they really want to put Jesus to death for. He says that he's the Christ. Well, how much Pilate knew about the Old Testament, we don't know. Probably at least some, having lived there about 10 years at this point. Did he know this term Messiah, the Christ? Savior deliver. We don't know. And so they add a description of Christ. They say, he says that he is Christ, a King. Now what they thought and what they believed that this would get Pilate's attention, that maybe he is a threat to the Roman empire. Well, of the three charges, this one is the only one that we can definitively say is true and is provable when they said that Jesus claims he's Christ, the King, did Jesus claim to be Christ? Yes, he did. In fact, just hours earlier, they pointedly asked him, are you the Christ? And he says, yes, I am. And so this is actually true, but why would Pilate care? (laughs) He's a pagan. These are Jewish laws and customs that they're talking about. He has no interest in this case. Well, that leads us uh, to Pilate himself, verses three and four. So Pilate asked him, that's Jesus saying, are you the King of the Jews? And he answered him and says, it is as you say. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Whereas the Sanhedrin are worked up into a frenzy as we'll see in a moment when we read the same account in the gospel of John, Pilate, maybe because he's still sleepy, he's unemotional. He's not exercised as they are. His response is cool and thoughtful. He's a phlegmatic potentate. Obviously I need a word that started with P, didn't I? And I found it. Uh, And he is a phlegmatic potentate. The Sanhedrin likely thought by saying Jesus claimed to be King that Pilate would be moved to see Jesus as a threat, but Pilate was no dummy. Let's give him some credit here. He discerned immediately, very quickly that Jesus was no threat to Rome. He understood this to be a religious, or at best a cultural disagreement that he had no interest in adjudicating on behalf of Rome. He probably thought that by saying, I find no guilt in this man, he could go back to bed. Case closed. But earlier experiences told him that would not likely be the case. We've been talking about irony throughout the last couple of chapters. We said it was ironic that armed soldiers came out in the cover of darkness bearing torches to search out the light of the world. We said it's ironic that the Supreme Court who's responsible for meeting out justice is responsible for the worst case of injustice the world has ever known. Here's another case of irony. This Gentile, pagan, Roman governor seems to have a greater concern for justice than the 70 most pious men in all of Israel. I said, let's give Pilate some credit. Let's not give him too much though. Pilate was no justice crusader. At the end of the day, he was a shrewd politician. I called him a potentate, and that's a little bit of a stretch. A potentate is a monarch, a king, or a ruler. The truth is that to be the governor of an obscure mid-eastern region like Judea was not very prestigious in the minds of most Roman nobility. Uh, he, he probably was a blue collar guy that had earned his stripes through military service. A secular historian says he was part of the Roman Calvary. His name was probably a nickname, which means good with a spear. He was a tough guy, a man's man, a good soldier, but probably because of his faithful military service, he was awarded this region to govern um, for years of faithful service by Emperor Tiberius. And he lasted as governor for over 10 years, which was very rare in that part of the world. But though a soldier by training, very quickly, he had to learn the politics of self-preservation. And what he does next in verse five is an example of political pragmatism. Look at verse five. But he kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. Here is where secular history is helpful for us. Men like Josephus who wrote history books, telling us what life was like in this part of the world during that epoch of history. And we know from secular historians that Pilate's 10 years of governing Judea were not without some dicey moments. In fact, he had two episodes, both very early in his administration that could have cost him his job. Uh, The first thing that he did, probably not understanding the culture, is that he paraded his soldiers through the streets of Jerusalem with standards, standards, a long wooden pole. On top of that standard, there was the image of Tiberius Caesar. He wanted to honor Caesar and like many of the soldiers in the Roman empire, he likely worshiped Tiberius. There was something called the cult of emperor worship that was very popular among Roman soldiers. They made sacrifices. They worshiped the emperor of Rome. And of course this offended the Jews based on the first and second commandment. First commandment, Exodus chapter 20, have no other gods before me. Second is likened to it, have no graven image. They break both. Here he is parading pagan gods and images into the holiest city in Israel. And very quickly it became clear that many of the Jewish people in Jerusalem were willing to die rather than to live like that, always exposed having these pagan images in their face every day. And so it led to a riot. Word got back to his bosses back in Rome that uh, stability in Jerusalem was shaky at best, and they sent word back to him to cool it, that to leave the people alone and take down the standards, and he did, but he never forgot it. There's a second incident that nearly cost him his job, and historians are divided of whether or not it actually happened. But the rumor was, that Pilate stole money from the temple treasury for a pet construction project. Now, whether he did that or not, it doesn't matter. The people believe that he did. And again, they threatened revolution. And this is strike two against Pilate. Remember, all the Romans wanted is to keep the peace so they could keep the tax revenue and raw materials coming. So Pilate's got two strikes on him early in his administration. For a while, things smoothed out. But here is another opportunity. Probably one more insurrection and Pilate's going to be recalled back to Rome and he knows it. So the Sanhedrin like Pilate were also cagey politicians. And so they began to leverage that knowledge that Pilate was on shaky ground with his bosses to get what they wanted. And so they made a very shrewd move. It's between the lines, you'll miss it if you don't look very closely. They threw him a lifeline They threw him away out of this corner. Look what they said, verse five, but they kept on insisting saying, he that's Jesus stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, comma, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Here's the loophole. Here's the technicality. Jesus was a Galilean. That was outside of Pilate's jurisdiction. That was true. We called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Jerusalem. And so like Pilate, Herod had come from his residence down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and and be among the common people. Pilate knows this. And so he says, ah, a way out. I'll send him down the street to Herod where he's staying and he can prosecute this case. Well, that was a very pragmatic move. Pragmatism by the way, is understanding of truth that it's fluid that if it works for the moment, we'll call it truth. Fortunately, like Pilate, Herod was in town and we'll see more about what Herod does with Jesus next week. Now I mentioned earlier that this same episode is in the Gospel of John. So I want to invite your attention there now because we have to look at all the gospels to get the fullest picture of what's going on. John gives us a much fuller account of the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. So come to John chapter 18 and verse 28. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they, that is the Sanhedrin, led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. That's where Pilate stayed when he was in Jerusalem. And it was very early. And they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now Galileans took Passover on Thursday. Judeans took Passover on Friday. That's the the difference. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, "'What accusation do you bring against this man?' And they answered and said to him, "'If this man were not an evildoer, "'we would not have delivered him to you.'" Now, Now get the picture. These are guys that spent their life trying cases. And when they're said, what are the charges against the person you've arrested? They said, just kill him and don't ask any questions. If he weren't a bad guy, we wouldn't ask you to put him to death. But finally they they relent as we saw, and he made three charges against Jesus. Verse 31, so Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. See, they'd already determined what the sentence should be, even though it was not under their purview to give it. They're forcing Pilate politically into a corner. But even then Jesus was in control. Remember Jesus was sovereign over all of this situation. One of our favorite verses as Christians is that God's able to work all things together for good, right? That includes the sinfulness of humanity. God superintended this entire event. He used the sinfulness and traitorous spirit of Judas. He used the injustice of the Sanhedrin and now he's going to use the depravity of the Romans working all in collusion to bring about his eternal plan of redemption. Verse 32, he says, all of this was done to fulfill the word of Jesus when he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. Not only did Jesus predict his death, he predicted the means of his death, which was through crucifixion. Verse 33, therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, the kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born. And for this, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And we had said this. He went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So really what's happening here is that truth is on trial. And friends, every day in this country, And in your kids' schools, truth is on trial. And I want to tell you three things about what the Bible says about truth today that I want you to write down, and I want you to hold them close when you leave here today. Number one, and this seems so obvious, but we have to say it given the climate in which we live. Truth exists. Truth exists. There is such thing as truth. Now, most of us who grew up from the 50s, until the 70s and 80s, that was a given. We were taught that in school. We were taught that in our churches. There is such a thing as truth. But beginning in the 1960s and continuing on to this good day, that is increasingly challenged. Truth has become fluid. You hear it every day in the entertainment industry. When people who are interviewed will say, this is my truth. As if there can be multiple truths. That's the implication. I've got my truth, you have your truth. They may be diametrically opposite, but they're both truth. That's not what the Bible truth teaches. The Bible teaches there is such a thing as truth and such a thing as a lie. Pilate would have fit in very well in our present culture. When Jesus claimed to be speaking the truth, Pilate cynically said, ah, what is truth? He'd been in politics long enough to know that truth changed with the administration. What was accepted, what was fact, was what was expedient. He had become incredibly cynical. Come close and listen. Christian, we're not immune from cynicism. I think it's the thing I struggle with more than anything else as I look at our culture is the temptation to become absolutely jaded and cynical. Pilate had become cynical. What is truth? Because cynicism can obscure even the most obvious truth. Pilate was standing nose to nose with the personification of truth, and he couldn't see it. Jesus said in John chapter 14 of himself, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Pilate couldn't see it because he was cynical. Truth exists. Now, the second point is, because truth exists, we need to ask a question. And even among our peers who would give us, maybe begrudgingly, the fact that truth exists, sometimes their next question is, who cares? (laughs) I've got to live, I've got to make it through this life So I've got to take care of me and mine. Well, the Bible says because truth exists, truth matters. Exodus chapter 20, we saw that the Sanhedrin was all upset because the Romans were practicing polytheism. They were bringing their standards with Tiberius' image. They were breaking the first and second commandments. And they wanted nothing more than to see Rome removed, and Israel, be independent again. But in their haste to hold up the first and second commandments, they break another commandment. Yes, it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yes, it says, make no graven images. But that same chapter, Exodus 20 says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Sometimes we excuse the breaking of one commandment in defense of another. And this is what they were doing. All truth matters. All the Bible is God, God's word, isn't it? Not just the part we like, not just the part that society can get along with, even the embarrassing parts are truth. Truth matters. And then thirdly, because truth exists and truth matters, what the Bible teaches about truth is that it is the standard of judgment. Truth is the standard of judgment. See, many people today place themselves in the seat of judgment over Christ and his truth claims, more specifically over the Bible. They they may like certain sections of the Bible that show Jesus defending the poor and the oppressed, but they don't care for the part where he calls them to repentance and faith. And so they, they kind of carve up their Bible the way they see fit. And when they do that, what they're doing is they're standing in judgment over the word of God but friends, what the Bible says is that we don't stand in judgment over the Word of God. The Word of God stands in judgment over us. The Word of God, the Bible says in the Old Testament, is a plumb line. Carpenter's tool. My granddad was a carpenter. He used to have one of these in his toolbox. It was a weight on a string. You would hold it up on the ridge line, and gravity would let it come to a rest, and it was from that plumb line that you determine if the building was square and level. In the New Testament, Jesus and the word is called the cornerstone. The cornerstone was perfectly cut to 90 degrees on all sides so that if the cornerstone was right, then you adjusted the rest of the building to the cornerstone. And we're speaking of truth. The Bible says truth exists. And you know what else the Bible says? Thy word is truth. Jesus says of himself, he is the personification of truth. And so we need to understand that it's not our job to stand in judge over, judgment over Jesus or the Bible. It's the purview of Jesus and his word to stand in judgment over all of humanity. And we have two separate views of truth here on display. Both are wrong and both lead to damnation. One is the Sanhedrin and one is Pilate. Most, most people in our society... I think fall in the category of Pilate. Remember Pilate said after examining Jesus' truth claims, I find nothing against him. I don't know a lot of people who are hostile to Jesus Christ, the historical figure. In fact, a lot of people, even non-Christians think he's pretty cool. He, He took on power and spoke truth to power. He was brave and many of them view him as a good man, somebody who is noble and to be looked up to. But like Pilate, though they find nothing against him, they don't believe he's who he claimed to be. They don't recognize that it's incongruous to, to think a man who claims to be God is a good man. As Josh McDowell famously said, he's a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. He can't be a good man and at the same time claim to be God if that's not true. But there is a small segment of our culture I think represented here by the Pharisees who absolutely hate Jesus and everything he stands for. They're openly hostile against the things of Christ, namely his church. They want to see us done away with. They'd be happy if every church in the country closed. The apostle Paul, before he was, the apostle Paul was named Saul. He was known for that moniker. He was in that category. You think these Sanhedrin are zealous to get rid of, Jesus and the church, Paul said of himself, he was more zealous than all of his peers. He called himself the Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, is touching the law blameless. He was zealous to get rid of the church because he thought he was doing the work of God. And in doing the work of God, it was Saul that held the coats of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Remember I said, sometimes the Roman government turned the. Pretended they didn't see this capital punishment that was going on. That's what happened in the book of Acts with with Stephen. Jesus got Saul's attention on the road to Damascus. He struck him blind with his holiness and he asked him a question. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus equated those he loved, the church, with himself to harm a member of Christ's body, the church, is to harm Christ himself. And and this is what people who claim to love God and reject the truth claims of Jesus have a hard time understanding. It is impossible, hear me closely, it is impossible to have a right relationship with your creator, whatever you call him, and reject the one he loves most, his own dear son. It would be the same thing After we say the final amen today, if I go out and greet you in the hallway and you come up to me, not that you would, and say, Pastor, we love you so much, do anything for you. You're our favorite pastor ever, but we can't stand your family. Your wife, your kids, they drive us nuts. I would not receive you as giving me a compliment at that point, okay? But so many people believe that they can say, oh, I love God. I pray to God all the time. Do you believe in Jesus? No, I don't believe that. You can't love God and reject Jesus. This is what the Sanhedrin were attempting to do. Truth exists in the person and work of Jesus. And if that is true, then it matters what we do with that truth. He calls us to repentance and faith and to follow him. And if we don't, we have rejected truth just as the Sanhedrin did and just as Pilate did. And one day the truth will stand in judgment over us. that's a frightful thing, friends, because the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus went all all over Galilee and Judea and the Decapolis performing miracles. And you know what he said? As he observed the people's reaction to his miracles, he said, woe to you Bethsaida, woe to you Chorazin, which were Jewish villages. If the same deeds had been done in Tyre and Sidon that were done in you, those were wicked Gentile cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for those pagans than for you. Why? Because they had plenty of light. They knew the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled every prophecy to the letter. They willfully, stubbornly refused to bow and repent. Let me speak to someone in the room here today. Maybe you come to church week after week, year after year, but you still will not bow your knee to Jesus. Maybe you don't find any fault in him, maybe you think he's a good man, but you don't believe he's a God. On the day of judgment, he's not going to be impressed with the, the thought that you thought he was a good man. It's all or nothing. Is he Lord, or is he not? If he's Lord as he claimed to be, that's truth, and truth matters. What we do with truth matters. You either bow your knee to him in this life, or you'll bow to him on the day of judgment when it's everlasting too late. What about you? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Do you believe that he is truth in the flesh? Are you following him for the rest of your life? Here's the good news. If you're not now, you can't. There's a lot of debate over what happened to Pilate. A good portion of Christian legend is that Pilate became a Christian. I can't find good proof of that. But I do know this. Pilate is one of those people that's included in the word all. that says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The thief on the cross is one of those too. You're one of those people. You're here today and the Holy Spirit is calling you, convincing you today that what you've heard is not just a a good story, it's the truth. And you have to deal with truth differently than a good story. He's calling you to repent of sins and profess faith in Christ publicly, and then begin a life of growing in grace until he calls you home. That's God's invitation today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us the truth without any mixture of error. Father, many of us tend towards cynicism. We wonder like Pilate, is there any truth left? What is it? If we we saw it, would we recognize it? The Sanhedrin didn't. They saw Jesus every day in the temple and they didn't recognize truth. Pilate stood nose to nose with it and didn't see it because of his own cynicism. And Father, there's some in this room who've heard the truth preached here and taught here for decades. And Father, I pray you do a miracle work today. I pray you would remove the blinders. I pray you would remove any objection, anything that would prevent them from a wholehearted commitment to Christ today. And Father, I pray that we'd see some saved. And then for Christians today, Lord, I pray that we would be emboldened to stand on truth. Not to be pragmatic politicians and go along to get along. And ignore those portions of scripture that the society would say are offensive. Thy word is truth. Father, help us to stand on truth no matter the consequences as Jesus did. Give us strength, Lord. Give us boldness. Season our speech with kindness and generosity. Help us to speak the truth in love to our lost friends and neighbors. We'll give you the glory for what you do through it. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.